welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast that's not only about the past and all its complexity, but also about how historians write history and how everyone can think about it. For more information about this or any episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can also sign up for our twice-a-month newsletter. Hello, those of us who still carry coins or cash, and I notice that I do that less and less, carry around with us a pocket guide to world history and culture. Money, writes Frank Holt, provides us with a historical record unrivaled by papyrus, paper, and parchment. Coins are perhaps the most successful information technology ever devised. In his new book, When Money Talks, A History of Coins and Numismatics, Holt briskly and whimsically explores the life of coins, the importance of coins, and how to decode the information that those coins provide, as well as providing us with a history of the history of doing just that. Frankly, Holt is professor of classical history at the University of Houston, with research emphases on the subject matter of the forgotten peripheries of the classical world, and on the methodology of cognitive numismatics, of which much more will be said in the course of this conversation. Frank Holt, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thank you very much, Al. Well, this is a, um, as I said, it's it's a whimsical, um, it's uh, learned, uh, it's remarkably brief considering the um, the the massive length of time <laughs> that is covered in the book. Uh, and as for the whimsical, we begin with the first se- section is entitled Johnny's Cash. So we know that uh, Frank Holt has a sense of humor immediately when we start the book. And we quickly get into the the sort of the magic and the mystery of coins. Uh, you make a Harry Potter reference. You talk about when Uncle Vernon locks Harry Potter in the cupboard and says there's no such thing as magic. You say Uncle Vernon should consult his pockets. What magical? What's magical about coins and cash? What's magical about coins and cash are that they function at all in ancient, medieval, and modern societies. They are an entirely faith based uh, object of daily life. They only work because of a kind of economic abracadabra that is often imposed upon, let's say, governing institutions. You will accept this uh, essential, uh, essentially a piece of worthless plastic or a piece of worthless paper uh, as something of great value. And we believe in that. Early on, uh, when I was born, for example, and you looked at a, a dollar bill, uh, imprinted on it was a promise that you could turn in that paper uh, uh, dollar bill for an actual silver dollar. And of course, we've rescinded that promise a long time ago. We simply now wish to believe that a piece of paper or something else uh, of, of almost uh, useless value has indeed great value to it. And so the reference I'm making there to Harry Potter is that the uh, wizarding money that Harry Potter has stored up at uh, Gringotts Bank is actual money made of gold and silver and bronze, which has intrinsic value. Whereas his uncle, who doesn't believe in magic, carries around in his pockets um, uh, these, these British pence that are of no real value except for the magic imparted to them by fiat by this notion that you will accept it because we all will have faith in it. Our words like fiduciary are from the Latin word fides for faith. And so everything about money is magical 
in the sense that it functions at all in our modern society. And there's a way, um, and you're very, you're very thought provoking about this. There's a way that you say that coins are alive. Coins want things. So you are a trained numismatist. Uh, what do coins want? Well, the question is what what we want to know about coins. And in order to find out as much of that as possible, we have to ask ourselves why coins act as though they do, why they seem to think as though they do. And I borrow this from mm. um, you know prize-winning Nobel scientists who ask themselves questions like, um, what does an electron do in a chemical reaction? We personify these kinds of things. And so I use the same kind of approach with coins. Um, and when I do so, I find out some interesting things. Now, this isn't a new idea. Uh, novelists and short story writers, uh, ever since Joseph Addison and right down to the, the current uh, Nobelist uh, Orhan Pamuk, often use as a narrative device um, the story of what, what a coin's life is like. What is a coin thinking? What is a coin doing? And I've read all those uh, works with some interest. But what I've discovered is that, in essence, the novelist wants to see in a coin something about human behavior whereas the numismistus wants to see in a coin how the coin itself is reacting. And so when I do that, I find that uh, contrary to how coins act in novels, real coins in our lives and in what we can imagine to be their lives want to escape from their associations with humans. They want to escape. Hmm. They want to hide in order to survive. Because the environment created for coins by people is a very treacherous one. Uh, we tend to uh, wear them out, to, to ding them, to uh, uh, you know, put them into those little slot machines at the, uh, at the, at the local zoo or something that mashes a, a one-cent coin into a kind of souvenir token. We are very destructive to coins. And when coins are destroyed, <laughs> they can't repopulate because they can only repopulate through imitation. And therefore, I see in coins this uh, almost Darwinian survival instinct um, so that, and again, to borrow from science, so that the memes of a coin, the memes being the uh, sort of uh, physical uh, or cultural analog to a biological gene, these memes of a coin want to survive. And they all the memes of a coin, its shape, its design, its color, its composition, all have to contribute to the survivability of a coin in the same way the genes contribute to the survivability of a particular species. And as a result, excuse me, as a result of that, uh, memes such as the roundness of a coin contribute to the success of a coin escaping from uh, what we might consider to be uh, human control by dropping and rolling and arcing around and mm -hmm. hiding behind things. I worked at Kroger for 10 years uh, as running a cash register, and it was always the most embarrassing thing for shoppers to drop a pocketful or handful or purse full of coins and to see how, how successfully many of those coins escaped from uh, <laughs> human bondage by rolling away and then settling down in some quiet corner behind a box or behind a display or something to that effect. And so, yes, uh, I see coins in that way. And what I, 
when I show students that, when I demonstrate how coins escape, they always tell me that they will never look at a coin the same way again because these coins are so selfish and self-serving uh, as opposed to how we normally think of them as inanimate objects. Yeah. They want to hide in a couch. They want to, yes. you know, cluster out, away from us. Exactly. Um, what, uh, why coins? Um, I mean, for, for one thing, it, it, as you made quite clear, there could be a variety of coins. The Spartans supposedly used, what, iron rods, heavy iron rods? Um, yes. And we'll get back to that because that says something very interesting about culture. Um, there was that uh, Greek city on the Black Sea that used dolphins, I think, as uh, sort of miniature dolphins as, as currency. Yeah. Um, Olbia. There's, no, there's nothing – yeah, Obia. Um, there's nothing uh, – famously, the, the, the people of Yap use enormous stone disks as a kind of currency. There's nothing obvious, necessarily obvious, about using small disks of metal as coins, is there? No. Anything can serve as money from animal pelts to stone disks to, um, you know, uh, cigarettes or a, a pack of gum. Anything can serve, uh, you know, the basic functions of money as a kind of medium exchange or a store of wealth or a unit of, uh, of, of, of commerce. But coins are particularly well suited to those tasks in any uh, ancient or modern community. Um, and they are useful because they are um, they are easily transported for the most part. Uh, they're not perishable like other forms of money, like uh, like a cow or like a cabbage. Um, they are what uh, economists call fungible. That is, you can take a, a, a coinage system and you can break it down into smaller and smaller units. Each unit composed essentially of the same materials as the larger unit. And so you can, as we might say today, make change easily with money. You can't do that when you use cows as a medium of exchange. Not, a cow is not fungible. You can't easily divide it into, into equal parts. Um, you know that every time you go to the grocery store and realize the, the different prices of different cuts of meat. Um, and so you want something that is, mm -hmm. that is fungible. You want something that is inherently valuable such as the uh, the metals that are that tend to be rare and highly prized by societies uh, that serve as money um, and coins are valuable beyond bullion because bullion is very uh, time consuming to use very clumsy to use in the marketplace you have to have scales and and uh, weight systems in order to weigh out um, bullion for every transaction with money, all you simply do is take the same bullion and you pre-weigh it and you stamp it to say that this is of such and such quality and worth such and such amount. And then you can simply count it rather than weigh it. So it speeds up transactions in a very important way. So, uh, And it's also interesting that coins very quickly develop beyond an economic tool as messengers. Uh, people discovered mm -hmm. that as long as you are trading about uh, pieces of stamped metal, what you stamp on them 
can then convey official uh, uh, decrees from the state. They can picture for you who your current king or queen might happen to be. They can celebrate a, a naval or, or land victory by your armies. They then can begin to serve as a, a means of communication. In fact, in the ancient world, the only means of mass communication. And so that adds to their other utilities um, with this sense of conveying you know, official pronouncements from the issuing authority. So coins are a technological revolutionary technological advance and a revolutionary cultural advance. Could you, uh, you, you've touched on a little bit how the coins are technological advance, but I think we should also, uh, it's important actually for the metaphor of coins that you talk about how ancient coins, well, coins through the Middle Ages up until the, I guess, 17th century, uh, how they were made, because that is, uh, we get a, we get many important words from that, from that process. Exactly. Um, we we have to understand that that there is a um, what archaeologists would call a chain operatoire, a, a chain of operations necessary to produce a coin, and so it's important as historians, as archaeologists, that we not see coins as simply the end product, but the process that mm -hmm. produced that end product, and then the life cycle of that product once it has been created, and so you begin with um, you know the tragic story of how gold and silver were mined in the ancient world, dependent upon um, slave labor that exhausted lives in large numbers. Uh, gold and silver were quite valuable, uh, and they came at a high human cost. And then that metal has to be smelted. It has to be refined. It has to be carried to a mint. And in that mint, you have the difficult operation of converting that bullion into actual coins. In order to do that, you have to have artists create dyes, that is, the, um, the stamps that will produce both sides of the resulting coin, the two sides of a coin being the obverse, or heads, and the reverse, or tails. And in fact, the earliest coins had only an obverse and no reverse design, but then the Greeks who adopted coins from the Lydians quickly realized, well, if you can put art on one side, why not put art on the other side as well to maximize you know, the, uh, the ability of that object to travel about and communicate? And so these dyes would be created, and, and these ancient dyes could be extraordinary works of art producing you know, the miniature masterpieces of art, there was often very high relief. And so coins, unlike our modern flat coins, which are great for stacking, but uh, you know, they lack that sculptural quality that mm -hmm. an ancient Greek uh, and to some extent Roman coins could produce. And so you would take that bullion, you would uh, measure it out into small uh, flans or unstamped discs of a uniform um, quality and quantity, place that on an anvil between these two dies, and then a worker would hammer the impression into that lump of metal, creating the coin. Uh, this was a time-consuming, tedious, and often quite dangerous operation. If you can imagine what it was like in a, a dark and noisy mint with all the clanging, with the high temperatures required to melt the uh, metals and so forth, um, 
I can't imagine what people were able to do. Uh, we have no sense that they wore goggles or hand protection of any kind. So it's a dangerous operation. And then they're producing something that is perhaps more mass produced than anything else was in the ancient world. If you think of manufacturing in the ancient world, uh, you know, producing enough helmets for the Roman army or, you know, producing enough pottery to sustain a, a wine industry, that is nothing compared to the production rates of coins across the ancient world. And so it's a, it's a massive kind of operation that reveals to us you know, the, the mechanics of that operation at each step. And so that's, you know, that's the general process by which mm -hmm. these coins were made. From these dies, you could stamp out tens of thousands of coins um, before, let's say, one die wore out and had to be replaced by another die. And as a result of that, we can trace uh, the mating of these dies across any particularly large coinage. And so it's, a, it's quite a remarkable operation that takes place that is you know, part manufacturing, part mass production, but also part art you know, at, at the highest level. Mm -hmm. It's part religion because so many religious ideas are, are imparted upon the coins. It's part military to sustain military operations. It's that's a very nice point about this is the closest to mass production that we get in the ancient world because of course the economic value of of coins um, depends in large part on their uniformity, uh, right? That they be the same weight of precious metal. That um, well, I think it's Isaac Newton. Is it Isaac Newton that comes up with the idea of the ridges on the coin so you can see when people shave coins? Uh, yeah, the milling it of comes coins. around that time. The yes. milling of coins, uh, yeah. So. So in fact, we do have, you know, we have the remark of a um, a raja in India during the time of the Roman Empire, uh, who who has recorded the the amazing fact that the Roman coins that are being imported into India because of the uh, 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 long distance trade taking place, the, the the king of India was was rather surprised at how uniform those coins were. And the point that he made is that you can have a coin that has this one emperor's face on it and then a different coin from a different time with a different emperor. And yet they all seem to be of the same weight standard, the same reliability of bullion in it. And so people were cognizant of these things across the ancient world. And so that uniformity uh, was indeed uh, you know, an important part of the success of coins. It's such a that's such a beautiful illustration too of the, the something you had mentioned before the fungibility of money um, that they can operate across culture um, in early America of course there's very little coinage to go around I just had a conversation with Sarah Damiano who's written a book on the women's use of credit in Boston and Newport during the 18th century and uh, but credit relationships require face to face interaction you uh, you can't really get credit from someone in Hartford if they've never met you before if you're from Newport. Um, the, here's the, the astounding fact that Roman coins are so standard, so uniform that they can be used in a completely different culture that Romans have never heard about. Exactly. Now, of course, um, we historians know that things change over time. And so there will be periods, uh, particularly the third century AD in Roman history, when coins were massively debased, uh, 
because there wasn't sufficient silver. A lot of it had gone to India, in fact, uh, and there wasn't sufficient silver circulating <laughs> in the Roman world to sustain a strong silver coinage. And so, uh, you know, the coinage had then to be adulterated. And we have we can do these interesting metrological studies of the rate at which um, Roman imperial coinage was debased. You know. Essentially, the same thing that the United States has had to do uh, in my lifetime. Uh, you know, when I was born, um, a, a dime was made of real silver, but we went through that process as the Romans did of debasing the money and and producing it in something that uh, you know was a a sort of copper-clad coin that. Because of faith, again, because of the magic of money, we accepted it as silver, mm -hmm. though it certainly was no longer silver at all. Well, you've, let's talk about the art and decoration of coins. Um, again, this is something that's culturally dependent. Um, Chinese coins, as you point out, um, they are not ornamental. Um, at least not to me, they're not. Um, they're extremely utilitarian. But the Greeks got in their heads that, you know, that both sides can be decorated and hence, hence the religious, the political and the information. Well, there's information on Chinese coins too, but the Greeks by decorating them create a very, shall I say, multivalent way of conveying information. So could you, could you talk about the various things that can be conveyed? I mean, this is an endless subject, but you you named so many. Um, what can be conveyed by decorating coins? We're absolutely right, Al. Because you know, though the Greeks didn't invent coins, they were the you know, they were the early adopters of coins from their neighbors, the Lydians. And it's true; it's not necessary at all that coins be beautiful or handsome in any way. They are at you know at at their um, basest level a utilitarian object of daily commerce. But we have to remember that the Greeks lavishly decorated everything in their societies. You know, they, they, they decorated the pots more than they need to. You know, that's why these ma magnificent mm -hmm. Greek vases are in modern museums as artworks when, you know, they were in someone's house as, uh, you know, in, in the same way that my cupboard has, you know, pots and pans and, and things of that type. The Greeks overly decorated in some ways their temples. They decorate, decorated their military armor. And so it's, it's, it's a natural thing that the Greeks wanted to make coins more beautiful than they had to be. That's sort of embedded in the Greek culture. They, they were a competitive culture, what we call an agonistic culture. The Greeks competed in everything, not just athletics, not just in, in war, but also in drama, in the production of art and so forth. And as a result of that competitive spirit, the fact that you have, let's say, 400 Greek city-states, each minting its own coinage, uh, there's a great deal of competition there. Um, in the same way, uh, I suppose that in the modern world, um, large cities in the U.S. compete. You know, which one has the newest sports stadium? Which one has the, you know, the finest convention center? For the ancient Greeks, as these coins circulated, whose coins were the most beautiful? And as a result of that, uh, you know, th they commissioned real artwork to be displayed on the coin. And the challenge there was how much can you 
you, you asked me about information and, and, and so forth. How much can you cram on the surface of a given coin? And these coins are, to me, analogous to modern uh, tiny disks of information technology. It's clear when we study the coins how much care was taken to maximize the message that could be imparted to it. And so you might not only have a beautiful um, sculptural image on a coin of, let's say, the god of Apollo, but in some cases, the artist who sculpted that die would sign the die in the same way that Picasso would sign a canvas. And so we can track the, uh, the, the, uh, the influence, the work of you know, individual artists. You could then uh, add to this information of you know, symbolic kinds, iconic kinds, and so forth. One of the interesting things that I noticed as I studied coins over a long period of time, let's say for the Greeks, at first, Greek coins are primarily image, primarily the, uh, the sculpted image on, of, of a god or goddess on a coin. And then, you know, for example, for Athens, you would have a, uh, you know, Athena, of course, on the coins. And on the other side, her uh, totem animal, the, uh, the owl. And you would have some letters to identify the city, A-T-H-E for Athens. And you would often have an olive branch, not because the Athenians were so peaceful, they certainly were not, uh, but because olives were a major staple of their industry. It's what they were famous for. Uh, Athens was the big olive, as uh, we think of New York as the big apple. And so over time, however, more and more wording was imparted onto the coin die. And so the die had to share its space with more words, particularly in the period after Alexander. When you have exalted kings issuing coins, they not only want their face on that coin, and they want that face uh, oftentimes idealized, you know, to be the most handsome or the, the strongest uh, willed image that you could create. But then they wanted to add titles, you know, at first king, but then great king or great king, the benefactor, you know, great king, the benefactor, the savior, and more and more uh, text would go on these. And so as much as I know you're interested in documents, more and more these coins become documents crowded with words, uh, carefully selected words also. And so so much that we can learn from them uh, in terms of that particular messaging. The idea is fascinating to me that you point out that in Plutarch, um, he associates and others uh, associate the founders, the legendary founders of Athens. So Solon introduces coins to Athens. Um, it's Lycurgus, founder of Sparta, who introduces the currency of Sparta, um, which is very much not a coin. Um, so there's a, a sense very early on that coins are somehow inextricably connected to the constitutional and cultural order of a polis. Absolutely. And also, uh, the point that you're making, I think, is that both Solon and Lycurgus were the quintessential lawgivers of those societies, the men who first brought to these nascent polis a sense of a community law. And coinage was a part of that. In fact, uh, the Greek word for a coin uh, and our modern word from that, uh, numismatics, uh, numismatists, 
from uh, the Greek word nomos, which means law or custom or convention. Mm -hmm. So coins were very much a part of the development of law in early Greek societies. Now, when when those coins are introduced by a Solon or Lycurgus, they are a revolutionary idea. When you go from a non-coinage society to a coinage society, a coinage that is minted and backed by a particular polity, by a, uh, a community of citizens or by kings or what have you, then the significance of that coin uh, makes the state a third party to all transactions that are taking place. Once when, when you and I, Al, used to do business by me trading you eggs and you giving me a, you know, a, a side of bacon or something of that type, once we start using the state's currency, the state's coins, then we have to buy into the state. And we then become conduits for the ideas of the state and things of that type. And because of that, the early adoption of coins uh, – it had to be introduced by important people like a Solon or Lycurgus because it was something that um, in, in some ways diminished the power of the old aristocracy. Coins were a leveling um, uh, influence upon societies. They were an alternative means of wealth. If you live in a small society like a Greek polis, where all the wealth has already been distributed since time immemorial, the best land has already been taken by those two families. Uh, most of the produce from that land um, accrues to the wealth of those particular two families, those aristocrats. There's no opportunity for other people to acquire or accumulate wealth of any type. You introduce coins, and coins facilitate commerce and trade. Mm -hmm. Um, I wouldn't say that coins create a middle class, but they're an essential part in the rise of a, a kind of um, middling class between the aristocrats on the one hand and the non-nobility on the other, the impoverished peoples. And this shakes everything up. So, so uh, all, all of a sudden you, you can go between the – you can go – you have a class that's neither a landowner nor a tenant or a serf. Or a slave. Exactly. You have someone exactly. who can accumulate coinage. That's that's a middle class. Exactly. In a way, that's the bourgeoisie. Those who those city dwellers who don't have land but can accumulate wealth. Exactly. And this this helps the development of the Greek city state, which is one of the you know foundational elements of you know Western civilization itself. Uh, it. To use coins requires a certain amount of literacy, particularly the more words you stamp on coins, the more people need to at least know that coinage vocabulary. Uh, now, we can't take that too far because I don't know how many of my students in a given year can translate e pluribus unum on one of our coins, um, but they certainly uh, you know, can read the rest of the coin and everyone had better be able to read you know, one dime or or uh, one cent or something like that, the value of the coin. So the introduction of coinage in early societies increased literacy. It, it increased, you know, numeracy, the ability to count. Ancient philosophers used to say, if you look at a society um, which has no real mathematics, you'll find that they never developed a coinage because Coins required a certain facility in math, particularly that fungibility quality and the fact that 400 different currencies and weight standards 
you had to be something of a economic savant to manage the exchange of one kind of currency on a standard to another kind of currency. And that can take place, you know, even within communities that were only a few year, a few miles apart. So it's, um, it's an intellectual revolution as well as a cultural revolution that takes place. And like um, what I, what I love is you bring out again and again and again, their uh, culture is not um, culture is also admonishment as well as encouragement. It's uh, there are guardrails as much as, as, as roads in, in culture. And so coins direct things. Um, some Spartan, the Spartans use iron rods and they use iron rods because they understand that coins change things, uh, that money changes things. Uh, could you explain the the legend of the iron rod? Is, is it true? Has anyone ever found an iron rod in, in ancient Sparta? Actually, they have. Um, they have found uh, they have. iron rods. Okay, in true. fact, the Greek, yeah, yeah uh, you know, Greek and, and, and you know, um, a handful of iron rods and so forth was used. Now, we can't say that Lycurgus actually was the person no. um, who you know, impose this upon the Spartan society. But when the Spartans made that monumental decision that they would become uh, an extremely autocratic militaristic society in order to maintain what they considered their way of life, their control over the non-free helots in the Spartan territory. Uh, when they decided to do that, they believed that they must isolate themselves as a people from the detrimental influence of others. That's why the Spartans didn't like the Athenians. Uh, they were afraid the Athenians might uh, you know, rub off some of their ideas on the Spartan people. And the Spartans wanted to be laser focused on uh, military training and things of that type. The Spartans didn't want great artists and great poets and things of that type. Uh, they wanted great soldiers. And they were concerned, of course, seen what happened in other societies that adopted a silver coinage, um, which was, you know, the basic unit uh, in the ancient world, silver more than gold and, and bronze, how that changed those societies, um, how it created a competition for wealth in those societies, how it created disparities, um, you know, between the interests of different groups within a society, the farming class versus the uh, shipbuilding class versus the fishermen versus, um, let's say, the, the um, intellectuals uh, in, in the um, uh, city itself. The Spartans didn't want all those influences. And so they realized that if you couldn't own silver coins in Sparta, uh, you still needed money. You still needed to make transactions. But if it wasn't anything of real value, then the Spartans would not be corrupted, would not be tainted by, uh, you know, these, I suppose, early capitalist notions of acquiring wealth and, and making yourself um, someone of a higher social standing, economic standing than you, your family might have been before. The Spartans didn't want that kind of... Uh, opportunity to exist within their state. Now, eventually, of course, history being history, uh, Spartans, particularly some of its uh, kings who traveled about and um, were heavily involved in you know, diplomatic uh, relations and military operations with other cities, the Spartans found that sometimes those kings were corrupted by coinage. And those kings who were found accumulating coinage um, 
were uh, therefore sometimes exiled, if not um, actually killed within the Spartan state. They were they were adamant that coins were a bad idea. The um, it, it, one of the revelations of your book uh, to me was that numismatics starts not that long after the creation of coins, let's say several hundred years afterwards, and it has numismatics begins as a sort of an administrative measure. Could you could you explain why? Uh, the Greeks were interested in almost anything that they came into contact with. Uh, and so when the Greeks found that someone in neighboring Lydia, uh, a, a early kingdom in what is now uh, central Turkey, had come up with this idea of stamped bullion to make it easier to exchange. Um, and Greek merchants began to uh, see the advantages, the speed at which uh, this could be done. I mean, a stamped piece of metal is no more valuable than an unstamped piece of metal, except that if we all have faith and trust in that stamp, we can dispense with the cumbersome weighing out process. And so the Greeks realized that administratively, these Lydians had an advantage. Uh, economically, they had an advantage. Uh, it was easier to do business with a Lydian than it was with a Greek. And so the Greeks being Greeks, they never saw an idea that they weren't willing to adopt or at least try. So the Greeks began to mint these coins. And they then were the ones who really exploded the notion of coinage and expanded it because there were so many Greek city-states uh, across the ancient uh, Mediterranean world. And as a result of that expansion of coinage, uh, someone in Athens then comes across a coin minted in neighboring Corinth, or someone far away on the island of Sicily in Syracuse, um, you know, finds in their money bag a coin that's been minted in, um, let's say, central Greece or Macedonia or someplace like that. They they began to question everything about that coin. They began to study coins. Aristotle, the philosopher of the fourth century, uh, points out that um, the, one of the great things about coins is that it teaches you the uh, importance of observation, of close observation of things. You know, the very the very basis of science is that we observe, uh, that we catalog, that we question. And so the Greeks were busy uh, in their marketplaces observing, cataloging, and questioning um, about these coins. And, you know, and then you have Aristotle's uh, you know, teacher, Plato. Plato wondering, what is, the, what is the essence of coin? What is the essence of value? What distinguishes a, a, a people who use... Um, an object like uh, a stone from people who use a stamped piece of money. Uh, the Greeks wanted to you know, bring everything into philosophy. And as a result of that, uh, numismatics as a field you know, really is owed to the Greeks. They didn't invent coins, but they invented numismatics, I think, as the study of coins. And not just the Greeks. Uh, you have a wonderful section on Jesus as numismatist and uh, really showing that all the sorts of many stories which people might have taken as Sunday school commonplaces actually have a profound – there's a lot of stuff that's buried beneath um, 
the surface that's hard for those of us who don't know about coins of the first century to understand. So when uh, someone gives him a coin and he, uh, they're asking about taxes and he says, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's, uh, what's the significance of that? What does a, what does a, someone like you, a numismatist in the 21st century, how do you see Jesus doing numismatics of a kind? All right. I do consider Jesus a Nazarene numismatist. I mean, um, <laughs> yeah. when, when you think It's that, amazing that, how many times you know, he talks about money it's, and coins. Exactly. It's really quite incredible. Jesus, yeah. He doesn't talk about carpentry, and Jesus doesn't use carpentry as a, um, you mm-hmm. know, as a means of explaining difficult things to his followers. And he's, he's talking to uh, you know, uh, average people, common people um, of his day. Not necessarily intellectuals, but the farmers and the fishermen and things of that type. And when Jesus wants to explain complicated ideas like um, the authority to tax and things of that type, uh, he's not going to. He doesn't talk about, you know, when I grew up, you know, Jesus the carpenter. Um, I was always surprised to find that. Well, no, Jesus more often will turn to a coin, to numismatics, to try to explain various kinds of things. And it's interesting that we lose some of the complexity of what Jesus the numismatist was able to understand and able to teach because of the decisions made by those who translated the King James Bible. Um, you know, I, I grew up um, reading the King James Bible and grew up reading about you know uh, widows' mites and farthings and uh, the tribute penny, the the penny that a uh, in the New Testament, that Jesus uh, challenges people to you know look at it, whose inscription is on this, and so forth. Um, and I can remember mm-hmm. even as a child assuming that when Jesus calls for a penny, he's calling for a one cent American coin, a, a copper coin. Uh, but what happens is sure, when you sure, try to, exactly. to take Jesus's references in the Greek New Testament and you convert them all, you know to English equivalents for an English readership uh, in the time of King James. You get the impression, therefore, that there was a uniform currency in Jesus's world, when in fact, Jesus refers to uh, Jewish coins. He refers, you know, by denomination, he refers to Roman denarii. He refers to Greek drachmas and uh, didrachmas. And this reminds us that in Jesus's world, he and his followers were constantly handling a diverse coinage. And, you know, for example, um, when I was growing up and, and reading that New Testament and Jesus overturns the, uh, the tables in the temple um, as a child, I, I didn't know what this fit of anger was, was necessarily all about. Uh, I didn't realize that these tables are banks. Um, you know, and the Greek word for a table is trapezo, which is still the modern Greek word for a bank. And a bank was essentially a table on which you had all these different kinds of currencies, Greek, Judean, um, Roman. And you could exchange one kind of currency for another, you know, in the same way that we go into a, a large airport and we, we do uh, currency exchanges and things of that type. That's what was going on there. And so when you read the New Testament, 
Jesus talks about, you know, unit pricing, how things are more uh, are less expensive when you buy them in larger quantities. Uh, I had never noticed that before until I really became interested in numismatics. Jesus talks about um, uh, sort of numismatic practices that have different names today. When you read a modern numismatic textbook, they might talk about the search for factor, which is this uh, general law in numismatics that the uh, the more valuable the coin that is lost, the more energy will be expended to recover it. Well, Jesus expounded that same notion when he talked about the poor woman who swept day and night because she had dropped a, uh, a silver drachma, a silver coin. That's the search for factor. And so all through the, the New Testament, uh, mm-hmm. it, you know, it's interesting to uh, encounter these different kinds of coins and the uh, lessons that Jesus was able to teach by referring to those uh, particular kinds of coins. And it's, um, you know, a- as a result of that, I-, I think that anyone would would make the, uh, you know, come to the conclusion that Jesus was a practicing numismatist, as indeed almost anyone in the ancient world had to be in ways that, you know, we don't have to, uh, we don't have to understand those coins as much as we do now. I can remember being in in Russia um, once during one of their currency reforms where the old coins were circulating alongside the newly issued coins. And I had no idea what was going on. I was a very poor numismatist on that occasion (laughs) because I would just have to take a handful of coins, old and new coins, hand them to the merchant and trust Please take what you're you're entitled to, but please give me back what I'm entitled to. Uh, you know, that's not how you, uh, you know, that's not how you uh, act in a a good, responsible, numismatic way. And it taught me a very valuable lesson about what it was like to live in the ancient world with all these different currencies that running around at once. Let's fast forward uh, 1,500 years uh, to uh, and briskly go through how numismatics goes from a sort of um, a collector's phenomenon in the Renaissance to becoming something like a science. Um, and that, yeah. Well, the, it's it's interesting because there were, I think, practicing numismatists in the ancient world, um, like Jesus like Aristotle and Plato, uh, like the playwright Aristophanes, who writes a great deal about coins in 5th century Athens. And then, of course, the Romans, too. Roman polymaths like uh, Pliny the Elder wrote a great deal about uh, you know the history of coins, the history of money, and so forth. Now, when coinage was um, less commonly used, uh, you know, there never was, I don't think, a complete uh, monetary collapse uh, as we go from the ancient to the medieval to the modern world. Uh, but there are times when coins are more commonly used um, in a society, and that use diminished when the, you know, the three-metal, the trimetallic economic system of the Roman Empire began to falter in the third century AD, um, and the coins then became heavily debased. And in many states that had been minting silver, they cease to do that. And trade becomes more um, 
you know, based on commodity trade than it does on on coins. Uh, but then, of course, eventually there is a uh, a rise in commerce, a rise or rebirth in cities, and that rebirth gives us that name, Renaissance. And with the development of the Renaissance, you know, particularly in the 14th century AD, that there developed that sense among people like like Petrarch, for example, who was a coin collector, who was a numismatist, that that sense that um, there was once a very interesting time in, in the distant past uh, that we would like to understand more, appreciate more. We we like the art that seems to have survived from that period that we will call antiquity. Uh, we we admire the people who ruled. Uh, the ancient Greek cities or ruled the Roman Empire. We want to know more about them. And so this was part of of the Renaissance, this rebirth, uh, this rekindling of a keen interest in classical antiquity. And part of that interest was material, interest in material culture, interest in the old buildings, the inscriptions in stone, in gemstones in, of course, coins. And these were collected in large number by those who had the leisure or, or the, uh, the finances to do so. These were collected. Um, and this gives us the rise of the so-called antiquarians, those uh, learned individuals who were interested in uh, sort of antiquities as a means of regaining contact with the world that existed before that middle age between us and antiquity, the, you know, literally the medieval period. And part of uh, the antiquarian uh, thrust was for individuals to create uh, their own individual cabinets of curiosities, their Kunstkammer, their um, whatever they could collect, you know, the very wealthy might collect statues, uh, beautiful statues or pebble mosaics and things of that type. But most people were able to find, when they plowed fields and so forth, coins. And because coins were works of ancient art, they very much became a part of this antiquarian movement in the Renaissance. And so people like Petrarch uh, would would go out to the farmers in their fields and say, you know, have you come across anything that looks like this, like this ancient coin? And and he would purchase uh, those coins or trade for those coins and and amass collections. And so, the collecting of coins, which is still very much a part of numismatics, was an essential part of this revival of numismatics as 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 a discipline as a field of inquiry. And more and more than these antiquarians began to uh, share knowledge that they had gained from their own particular collections, their own Kunstkammer. And they began then to create catalogs. And some would develop a particular interest. I want to collect coins of all the, the so-called 12 Caesars, the first uh, beginning with Julius Caesar and, and so forth, uh, through the Julio-Claudian and and Flavian dynasties, or I want to collect coins that show particular uh, gods or goddesses from ancient Greece. And so this community of collectors became a community of true scholars who really began to investigate, to inquire you know, about these coins, what they could tell you. They would answer arguments about 
you know, things like chronology or did this Roman emperor really exist? Do we have any coins that validate what was written about him in, in a particular source? Uh, and as a result of that, I think numismatics as a discipline, um, you know, though it has its origins in among the ancient Greeks and survived through the Middle Ages, really has this burst of energy that comes along in the Renaissance, the Italian and the Northern Renaissance. I um I was surprised to to, to when I read that you you, you suggested that uh, numismatists and archaeologists are not always friends, um, and that that sometimes it would seem that there are it's archaeologists versus numismatists. Um, why is this? Is that something to do with perhaps um, the the, the the way that numismatists collect coins? Essentially, archaeology and numismatics had the same origins in Renaissance antiquarianism. They had the same aims, the same methods. They were the same people. And many of the uh, famous Mm -hmm. early archaeologists of the late 19th and early 20th centuries actually got their start as coin collectors. And so it was a perfectly acceptable thing for uh, numismatists and archaeologists, to collect antiquities until the latter half of the 20th century when archaeology uh, went through a very exciting period of self-reflection, out of which came the idea that uh, more and more that archaeologists should abstain from any form of collecting antiquities because this imparted value to objects uh, and therefore might encourage unscrupulous looting or scavenging of archaeological sites. After all, archaeologists were saying that the old notion that you excavated a city just to find magnificent ruins, magnificent things to put inside a museum for people to look at, was not the purpose of archaeology at all. The so-called new archaeology from the 1960s on argued that it should be a a research-oriented, question-oriented pursuit that we excavate to answer particular questions, not just to accumulate beautiful things to put inside a museum or uh, a glossy catalog for some kind of exhibition. And therefore, archaeologists in the 1960s began to look at numismatists as sort of um, not just old school, but dangerously old school, to the extent that numismatists were still encouraging or able to collect coins of some you know, uh, value to archaeology. Archaeologists didn't care if you collected modern coins because that wasn't necessarily going to impede the archaeological process. But ancient coins, that became a real bone of contention between a collector's community on the one hand and the academic archaeologists on the other. Um, and so, uh, you know, a modern archaeological journal, research journal, would not accept a a, um, a, a article submission from um, Al, the archaeologist, who really is just an amateur who has a lot of money and he goes to Greece and um, digs up a, a, a site in a friend's backyard and finds stuff and then he publishes it. Archaeology would not tolerate that kind of behavior. Uh, And so they don't like it that in some cases, not all, Mm -hmm. numismatists do tolerate that behavior, that modern numismatic research journals are still filled with articles written by non-academics. 
They're written by people who say, this is what I've learned from my personal coin collection. That has put um, the two camps more and more at odds in recent times. And it's a battle that's being waged on the internet. It's a battle that's sometimes waged in the courts between um, you know, collecting interests and uh, more purely academic uh, or an archaeological interests. And because some people still think that a numismatist is first, foremost, and sometimes only a coin collector, uh, numismatists get thrown into uh, sort of the, the purgatory that archaeologists uh, throw all collectors into. And I, you know, I, my personal opinion is that it's, it's perfectly okay for academic numismatists to collect coins responsibly. No, you shouldn't be buying coins from conflict countries, coins from Syria that almost certainly have been looted. I've done my part to alert, um, uh, for example, um, Internet auction um, sites that I can identify are selling coins that have been looted from the Afghan National Museum in Kabul. You know, I wrote personally to the buyers and the sellers to say, you probably aren't aware of this, but this is a stolen artifact from uh, a foreign country, and it should not be trafficked in this way. And in most cases, people responded positive, positively to this, though there are, of course, all, always others who think, if I can buy this coin at a bargain price, I don't know where it came from. And so uh, it is a, you know, I devote a whole chapter mm -hmm. to trying to flesh out this problem of uh, coin collecting um, as a kind of uh, a tradition that goes back to the Renaissance and the relationship of that tradition to modern archaeology, because we all have to work together, historians, numismatists, and archaeologists. Yeah, I, I would suggest to, to listeners that uh, not many uh, historians, uh, let alone, or historians or classicists, would name drop Buddy Ebsen at some point in their, in their book, but uh, I'll let you have, you have to read the book to discover the connect, uh, Buddy Ebsen's connection to the world of numismatics. Um, th th this is a fascinating question because some of the most interesting discoveries of the last uh, several years in, in Britain um, have been by metal detectorists uh, who used to probably be in worse odor with archeologists than even numismatists. And yet recently metal detectorists have done found really astonishing stuff and they found hordes that's for, for listeners h-o-a-r-d-s i hope i pronounced that correctly hordes um uh hordes of coins and you have two wonderful chapters on hordes uh and uh there is a pirate's treasure is a horde um so is what silas marner keeps in george Eliot's novel uh but so is the what the dragon has in, in Beowulf, what the dragon, the fire drake amasses and uh, that eventually kills Beowulf. Um, and Tolkien takes that and turns it into smog in The Hobbit. Um, could you talk about the, the fascination of hordes? This is another, another place where coins quickly become part of, of magic. Yes. Um, hordes are essentially a, a, a kind of treasure. And people have always been fascinated of course, by treasure, the 
ancient Greeks wrote about it. The Romans wrote about it. Uh, there are reports of various treasures being unearthed uh, and legal disputes arising about who has proper ownership over those uh, particular hordes. Uh, you know, you know, treasure hunters, treasure ships, all of that, you know, since my childhood has, you know, uh, always been part of um, our our cultural fiber. You know, again, as as you say, these stories of Sir Walter Scott and and Tolkien and and others about um, you know Robert Louis Stevenson and pirates and things of that type. Uh, we all, I think, uh, even I would bet some archaeologists uh, think and dream sometimes about finding a <laughs> a, a treasure uh, that has been left behind. But of course, for the numismatists, what we have to remember that is that treasure is a story of tragedy. Uh, and we often forget the tragic side of all of those mm. treasures. Uh, you know, every time you you find a Spanish galleon loaded down with with silver um, on its way from the New World to the Old, uh, we have to remember that it's only there because that ship sank, and perhaps those aboard that ship uh, were killed. The only way in which um, someone, a detectorist, as you say, a metal detectorist in, in Britain or somewhere else can find a huge pot of buried silver coins or even gold coins, sometimes in, in unexpected numbers, is because whoever buried that hoard never came back to reclaim it. Mm -hmm. And so I talk about hoards um, as a misery index for the historian. Um, the, the more hordes you find in a given time and place uh, is an indication of a higher uh, level of misery in that time and place. Because it's not, and we can never know how many people um, you know, buried uh, their wealth uh, in advance of some invasion or some other kind of calamity on the horizon. We never know how many buried their wealth but we can have some idea of how many never reclaimed that wealth. And it's the non-recovery of hordes that is historically significant for us. Uh, because that in every case that the hoard is there for us to find today, it means that it's at the time that it was buried, some horrible event intervened. An invasion, displacement, death, disease, dementia, something came along uh, and kept that uh, hoard there. So again, the numismatist asked, never asked the question, uh, um, you know, why is this hoard here? The question is, why is this hoard still here? What does it tell us about uh, the conditions at the time that that particular treasure was committed to the earth? And of course, the other thing that's important about hordes is not only that they serve as a, a misery index, but that um, a, a coin is to a hoard as a document is to an archive. You know, we can we've talked uh, now for some time about how much can be learned by looking at one coin. One coin can transform our understanding of an event in history. But when that one coin is found in conjunction with a large number of other coins, deliberately brought together, deliberately secreted in a particular place, then that one coin, that one document, becomes an entire dossier, 
an entire uh, archive of information so that what we know about this coin can then be related to what we can learn about, let's say, 1,000, 10,000, 100,000 other coins in that same hoard. So hoards are of tremendous historical interest to us. Treasure is interesting to us because of our dreams of avarice, but hoards are interesting to us numismatically because of the historical information that they might preserve and therefore might convey. And that's, again, to go back to the earlier question about archaeologists, that's the thing that worries archaeologists most, is that when hoards are discovered, they are so rapidly dispersed uh, rather than recorded and studied. And an active coin market can, in, in the worst instances, encourage the disbursement of an otherwise valuable intact hoard. What um, say we've uh, if someone finds a a, a, ninth, a hoard of ninth century uh, a ninth century hoard uh, Carolingian coins? Um, what now, using modern scientific techniques, uh, saying analyzing the uh, the metal? Um, what what, what uh, analyzing as well as the uh, sort of the very old techniques dating back to the Renaissance and beyond about what the the art of the coin and how the coins uh, uh, stamped and so on. What could you what could you tell uh, from from getting a hoard from the from the ninth century? Well, a lot will determine uh, be determined by um, the contents of that hoard. Uh, is it a hoard composed of one particular coin type, one particular coin variety? <clears throat> or is it a hoard that's composed of coins from many different places? Uh, if, if the hoard contains coins that were minted, uh, let's say not from one mint, but from 50 mints, that gives us an idea of how coins are moving from place to place and at what speed those coins might be moving. We can get then a snapshot of an entire economy uh, with that single hoard. Uh, we can also then determine, um, for example, uh, whether or not the, we talked earlier about debasement of coins, are the, are the coins gradually losing um, some of their metal content uh, as a deliberate act of debasement that's taking place. So what we can do with a hoard is look at life ways, look at lifestyles, look at uh, patterns of exchange across time and place that a single coin would not be able necessarily to tell us. And again, the marvelous thing about hoards is when you find not only that one Carolingian hoard, but let's say it is found um, in an area where six other hoards have been found also. Though not all of them buried, let's say, at, at exactly the same time or place, not all having the same composition. We can sometimes then tell that, whereas we would never have known before that this coin, um, which doesn't have a date on it, was minted and circulated earlier than that kind of coin. We can sometimes determine that by comparing one kind of hoard to another. Here's a hoard that has none of the coins of that variety in it. Um, and yet, that was a common variety in three or four other hordes. That gives us a chronological chain that we can use to reconstruct an entire society. It's from coin hordes that 
I've been been privileged, for example, to to help uh, reconstruct an entire ancient Greek civilization that we otherwise would know almost nothing about. But because um, because of coin hordes in particular, we can begin to figure out how many kings ruled there and what order did those kings rule, what sort of uh, crises might have been occurring uh, during the reign of this king as opposed to the reign of that king, and so on. It and I'm only speaking now of what we can do now, and, and you know, and, and as you said, I'm not even talking about metrological analyses and things that we can do now that we perhaps couldn't do before. And I'm excited by the fact that, you know, ten years from now, a um, hundred years from now, we'll be able to ask and answer questions that haven't even occurred to me yet. Uh, but we are far from exhausting <laughs> the full value of what a coin yeah. or a coin hoard can tell yeah. us. <clears throat> Well, now that you, uh, you 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 made that reference, could you could you tell listeners what the civilization was that you uh, you, you investigated using coin hordes? Yes, um, many years ago, when when a history student at the University of Virginia, I became uh, fascinated by the fact that Alexander the Great. This is almost like it's off the front pages of uh, of today's uh, newspapers. Alexander the Great, a major Western power, invaded what is now Afghanistan, um, tried for some years. In fact, he spent more years there than anywhere else in his empire trying to uh, establish some sort of uh, peaceful society. Again, sounds very familiar to other Western attempts <laughs> of our own day. Uh, but eventually Alexander left as all major superpowers tend to do, uh, that have invaded Afghanistan. It was then called Bactria, B-A-C-T-R-I-A, Bactria. And Alexander left behind in Bactria um, tens of thousands of Greek settlers, forced to stay there, forced under you know, uh, pain of death uh, to stay there. Unfortunately, that's not what the United States is doing with its uh, personnel, forcing them to remain in Afghanistan. But Alexander did that. And the question was always fascinating. What happened to those Greeks who lived there, uh, settled there, built cities there, worshipped their own gods there, and so forth? And the only way that we can really reconstruct hundreds of years of their history um, through uh, the reigns of some 36 kings and queens is the fact that they minted coins gold, silver, bronze, and even nickel. The earliest nickel coins were minted out there. And whereas almost no traditional accounts survive of what happened to those Greeks, uh, whatever was written about them, uh, the kinds of things we would look for today, inscriptions and diaries and, and things of that type, haven't survived. But coins do. Coins minted in huge numbers of durable materials and so forth, uh, minted by those kings and queens, Greek kings and queens out in Afghanistan, have been found there in huge numbers. And it's from the hordes uh, that we can reconstruct something of uh, the entire civilization. Uh, you know, I, I, can, I can tell you uh, the order in which the kings reigned and, and things of that type. Uh, and the fact that one Greek city has been excavated in Afghanistan. And the only way we know when that city was abandoned by the Greeks is from the coin evidence that survives from that site, the hordes 
that come from that particular site. So yeah, the, the so-called kingdom of Hellenistic Bactria, uh, Afghanistan after Alexander, is a prime example of how much numismatics can contribute to historical science. Well, at the beginning of the conversation, I alluded to the fact that one of your uh, major, uh, other than the Bactrian kingdom uh, and Afghan, the, uh, the Hellenistic Bactria, one of your um, interests also is um, cognitive numismatics. So could you explain what cognitive numismatics is? Yes. Uh, and it arises uh, pretty much from my interest in reconstructing this lost civilization out in Afghanistan. Uh, I, I borrowed from archaeology, because again, I think it's important that historians always look beyond their disciplines and, and and try to apply advances made in one field to another. So as a numismatist, as an historian, I've always followed archaeology very closely. And there's a branch of archaeology called cognitive archaeology that investigates objects in order to understand the the thinking, the mentality behind those particular objects. And I found that coins are a, a, an excellent way of examining the cognitive history of an otherwise lost people. Now, you and I both know as historians that in one, one part of our modern lives is that history has taken on a much greater interest than it had before in non-elite populations, in writing the histories of everyday people, of everyday life, of everyday objects and not just to write about the kings and queens and so forth. And cognitive numismatics is something that I, I sort of uh, coined, and invent, coined, <laughs> coined and invented to try to uh, do this very same thing. Uh, what I realized is that if you examine how coins are made, and in particular how coins um, are sometimes made poorly. That is the mistakes that are made inside the mint. These are mistakes made by the common workers that I, I alluded to earlier, those who engrave the dies, those who hammer the dies and the coins and so forth. They have to work under very difficult conditions and they make mistakes, they make errors. And so I began by tracking statistically the kinds of mistakes that appear on the coins that came from those mints. For example, misspellings of uh, Greek words or Greek kings' names and things of that type. And trying to understand why in this period is there so much apparent error in the coins and the way that they were manufactured from another period. And I was able to track levels of, you know, uh, I suppose what we'd call industrial stress that was taking place. So what cognitive numismatics was uh, allowed me to do was to write a history about the lives of people who are otherwise completely invisible to us, who live completely sub-historic lives beneath the normal layer of historical evidence. And as a result of that, um, you know, earlier statements that had been made by historians that when we study, for example, when you study the coins, that naturally focuses everything on the kings and queens who issued them, and we can tell nothing about the broader societies that use them. Well, cognitive numismatics says that's entirely wrong. We can tell a great deal about the societies 
um, not only how the coins were used, but how they were made to create these kinds of cognitive maps that I'm that I'm very excited about. And so it's um, it's caught on. I'm glad to say other uh, scholars are beginning to use cognitive numismatics uh, in the study of their own uh, groups of coins and so forth to try to expand what um, what numismatics can uh, mean for the study of uh, you know even societies for which other kinds of evidence would be lacking. Well, finally, I, I was uh, curious after finishing the book, um, what you would like, um, what would you, uh, uh, what would you wish uh, that other historians who are not classicists, um, necessarily classicists, what would they, what would you wish that they knew about numismatics? If you're teaching just a two-hour course to a, a group of graduate students. Um, uh, from studying medieval France and 19th century China and 18th century colonial America, um, wide range of times and places. Um, what would you hope that they might learn um, f- about numismatics that would be a benefit to their own research? Well, f- the first thing that I'd want them to understand is that numismatics is not simply coin collecting but that it is a much more significant endeavor that involves curating and analyzing coins. I'd want them to understand that coins are an essential source of information for a great many societies because, indeed, coins are durable. They generally are continuously minted, so there are no breaks in the chain of evidence that they provide, and that coins generally are packed with as much data as an issuing authority can imprint upon them. And that, again, as in cognitive numismatics, that these coins can tell us not just about the elites who um, you know, com- commissioned the coins and so forth, but also about the common people who made those coins and who used those coins. And as a result of that, coins can therefore answer questions sometimes that no other source could perhaps answer. And you know, part of the teaching of those uh, students would be you know, to remind them of the, of the importance of material culture, of objects as evidence, of objects as um, uh, treated in the same way as we normally might treat documents or texts of some other kind. I'd want them to know something about archaeological theory um, so that they can appreciate um, Know, new ways of examining that kind of material evidence. They need to understand that the role of coins, that they are not just economic, but they are also social and they're political and they're religious and they're military. Uh, they are involved with um, you know, ideas of, of power and superstition and anything else that might interest us in a given population. So they need to know how to to read a coin in the way that you or I might also read a text in order to derive the most information that we possibly can from it. They need to know the language of numismatics as a discipline and the tools of numismatics as a discipline. 
And I imagine that that's, that would be my two hours right there. Um, but I would just be getting started um, if I could impart <laughs> that kind of things. And the important thing, again, is to remind those students to cross disciplinary lines whenever they can. Don't read just in your discipline. Read beyond it. Um, read about numismatics. Read mm-hmm. about archaeology. Um, bring something new to your own particular topic. And in fact, that something new might in fact be coins, because there are, I'm sure, a great many things that coins can tell us about more modern societies that no one has bothered to appreciate because, you know, we are, we already feel overwhelmed by, you know, modern levels of documented evidence that perhaps we think, well, I don't need coins also. I think that that's, in many cases, a big mistake, because until you look into the coins, mm-hmm. uh, you have no idea what it is that those coins who are trying hard to survive and to escape us might nevertheless tell us about ourselves. My guest today has been Frank Holt. He's the author of When Money Talks, A History of Coins and Numismatics. Frank Holt, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Just a brief reminder, if you're listening to Historically Thinking on the website, that's great. But for your convenience, you can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Pandora, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, GeoSavin, Podchaser, TuneIn, Deezer, and there are more. In fact, wherever there are podcasts, there you can find Historically Thinking. While great reviews are wonderful on whatever platform you want to write them, the best possible review that you can give us is to forward the podcast to a friend you think will find it interesting. You can also follow us on Twitter at hist underscore think or on Facebook. 